Welcome. Welcome, dear listeners. It's 4 October, and this is Pat and Rod Save the World. I'm Pat Brown. I'm Roderick Macon. All right, Rod, what's on the agenda today, mate? Uh, yeah, well, there's, uh, there's a lot of things happening in the world, as there often are, uh, but <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a static existence. No worries, no worries starting with the truism. Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, Hong Kong protests have really interested me this week, uh, and obviously um, uh, the sudden rush in news articles on Ebola uh, ever since an American got uh, diagnosed with it. Certainly. Yeah. Um, now, did we have another topic in mind today? Uh, uh, one of our uh, one of our listeners, John Kilpatrick, um, he uh, he suggested that we talk about the uh, the failure of representative democracy. That's an interesting one. I think we should finish with that. It's pretty philosophical. Yeah. So yeah, shout out to Kill, who full disclosure is an old schoolmate of ours. Actually, he's come out of the woodwork, and that's a great idea. So we'll take him up on it. Right. Yeah. All right, Hong Kong protests. I mean, I think in the interests of getting people familiar with where we're coming from, I think both Rod and I are a big fan of these enormous protests that are going on throughout the world in various places, Turkey, the Arab world, at least a few years ago, yeah. and now Hong Kong. Um, Euromaidan in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. And Rod and I were talking just before about the generational element of these protests. It seems as if the protesters are really, really young people. And at least the reaction against the protesters in Hong Kong is um, coming from people who are, uh, how would you put it, they're more established in life, the sort of middle class shopkeepers yeah. and um, older people who I suppose are more interested in stability than they are change. Yeah. And uh, I was, I mean, I was saying, I don't think that's necessarily unique to any of these protests. I would imagine that uh, if you look at, you know, most protests that have ever occurred anywhere in the world about just about any issues have been mostly younger people. Um, but, uh, but it is interesting that there have been such, you know, large, uh, uh, numbers of people protesting against, you know, quite different things in each in each place. When you're talking about Arab Spring or Maidan or as uh, what are they calling it in Hong Kong, the umbrella, the um, umbrella revolution. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, do you think that there's an underlying theme though? I don't know much about Maidan, but at least so far as Turkey, Hong Kong, and the Middle East is concerned. I really feel like the thread was that people didn't feel as if they were uh, having a say. Yeah. Um, uh, for just a little bit of background, uh, the Maidan protests, uh, the, uh, the ruler of the Ukraine at the time was uh, very closely allied with, uh, with Russia, quite, a, quite reactionary, and... People wanted to move away and, and join with uh, uh, more in a European Union direction. Um, or at least a significant portion yeah, of the population. Certainly but, yeah. in Kiev, which is where most of the, uh, the protest was going on. And they just took over basically the Maidan, which was the, the centre square and created uh, 
you know, their own little barricade, barricaded mini city in the middle of the city. Okay. Yeah. So there does seem to be a common theme there. And to return to the Hong Kong protests, you're more familiar with it, Rod. So over the last few days, we've seen something of a, a counter-revolution. Put it that way. So yeah, you want to talk about that? Sort of counter-protests um, in that uh, there have been growing numbers of anti-protest protesters. Uh, and I was reading, uh, I was reading an article this morning where... Uh, some of the some of the Umbrella Revolution protesters overnight were actually outnumbered by the the uh, anti-protest movement, uh, and uh, a lot of the protesters ended up being assaulted. Um, and there's various uh, uh, talk today about how the people who were assaulting them had triad links and all that kind of thing. I don't know enough about that to really say for sure if that's. Uh, exactly what was going on, but it's certainly being reported. Well, yeah, I just read that in the New York Times. I think it's pretty well established that there are links, but the extent and the precise nature of those links is unclear. But yeah. certainly they're there. Yeah. And I, I mean, I did think it was interesting that uh, that the protesters overnight were being outnumbered by the, the anti-protesters because it certainly seemed earlier in this week that there was huge, huge groundswell of support for this movement within Hong Kong. And I mean, I was thinking about whether or not um, possibly a lot of mainland Ch um, Chinese had been shipped over by the Chinese government to help swell the anti-protest movement. That's just uh, a thought off the top of my head with absolutely nothing to back it up. Yeah, uh, I think you could put a lot of the counter-revolution um, down to the fact that I've heard this from a number of different people who've lived and worked in Hong Kong. Mm. And very much in Hong Kong, the business is business. And the protesters are now getting in the way of the business. Yeah. And that seems to be a common refrain from the people who are against it continuing. Yeah. Well, I, I remember thinking when the Hong Kong protesters uh, protest started, uh, or, or at least when I first heard about them, my initial thought was, oh, that doesn't sound very very Hong Kong because my my whole uh, per perception of the place was a very business driven uh, very business driven uh, city everything pretty much just coming down to the bottom line and it uh, it it struck me that well people must be really unhappy about the uh, about what the, the the Chinese government is doing in terms of limiting freedom of expression um, and uh, interfering with uh, the democratic process that they were supposed to be guaranteed in that uh, in that in that uh, country. Yeah, so there was something of a guarantee given to the people in Hong Kong that they would have completely free and fair elections yeah. in two thousand and seventeen. But as it happens, the uh, central governing authority of China have basically said that they are going to vet the candidates for that election. There's also been some. Prominent, some crackdowns on prominent media figures yeah. um, who were considered a bit risque. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, people were, talk, people were saying, you know, it's the end of the, the one country, two system uh, uh, setup, which was um, supposed to be in place when China retook control of Hong Kong from the British. Yeah, yeah. And so I suppose we have a lot of sympathy for the aims of the protesters yeah. and the the aims so far as all the different groups because there are many different sort of factions within the protest movement are first of all to remove the current leader of Hong Kong who's extremely unpopular and whose name I can't pronounce um, and second of all to um, have free and fair elections as they were promised previously in the deal 
between Britain and China, uh, releasing uh, Hong Kong back to China. So um, I can't see that those are unreasonable demands, but I can see that even the process of making the demands is seriously problematic for greater China. Yeah. It's, um, it's the sort of thing where I can, I can imagine them worrying uh, about the precedent that would set for mainland Chinese. No question. And the other thing that I think is little known about China that I read an article on recently is that China has thousands of protests a year particularly around land seizure. Yeah, it's, and, been an, it's been an ongoing issue for yeah. mainland Chinese for a long time. It's caused a lot of angst. So it's not as if there aren't protests going on in China. And to the Chinese who are really interested in a peaceful rise, as they like to put it, um, the idea of protesters in mainland China getting the idea that if they're organized and persistent enough they can actually get what they want that i mean that's just a terrifying idea to the governing authority of of china um, and the, the leader of the uh, communist party is a, a, a guy by the name of um, xi right um, and you know he commonly put xi who must be obeyed <laughs> he's a, apparently a fairly conservative character and i just can't see them giving way to this protest that said, I can't see a Tiananmen Square like crackdown either. No, there, well, there's too much. Uh, there's too much international attention on it for that. I would have thought. Uh, Not to mention the fact that I doubt the population would stand for it. Yeah. I think they would actually ferment a lot of sympathy for the protesters if they were too violent. Yeah, as in, uh, I read somewhere. I can't remember which article was. Uh, read this one in, um, but to the extent that even a lot of the uh, the police in Hong Kong now have been told to just step back and stop with the tear gas and and riot control because it was creating a bad look. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting though. I can think of a number of different sort of protest movements that have had serious trouble with uh, armed thugs. It was a big. It was a big deal in the Iranian. Um, protests of 2009, I believe. Yeah. Um, it's a big deal in the Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, it's a big deal now in uh, Hong Kong. And I think it's a really interesting expression of the way that nation states or ruling factions now conduct themselves. Yeah. In the sense that they can't out and out suppress people. And while that's a terrible thing, I actually think that's an indicator of progress. Um, if you yeah, are like, so insecure about exercising state just, power... You can't just send in the army anymore. No, you can't. I, I think that the world has advanced in this respect. There's something of a consensus that it doesn't matter how much of a repressive regime you are, to overtly repress your people using state apparatus is considered a very, very risky thing indeed. And that's good, yeah. I think. Well, I suppose look what happened in Ferguson in the States. Absolutely. When they, I mean... The uh, the initial um, the the initial few days when you had uh, the police in basic full military gear uh, and what an awful look that was for the entire world watching on um, and uh, and there was actually they sort of seemed to make a conscious decision oh maybe we should try and de-escalate this a bit it was probably a bit too uh, too late by then hmm. um, yeah the but there was certainly a noticeable difference after a few days when. Um, you suddenly started seeing police just walking around in normal uniforms again. Governments do seem to fear protests 
large sustained protests in a way that they previously didn't. It's almost as if there are certain options that governments used to use to suppress protests, uh, like Tiananmen Square, that's a good example, that are no longer viable. Yeah. Right? Um, and I think that while it's an annoying thing to see the government colluding with thugs to break up what are uh, peaceful right. and and um, fastidiously sort of conducted protests, it's a mark of progress. And I'm always kind of trying to see the bright side of things. I like to sort of focus on what we should be grateful for. Yeah. And that's, in, something, yeah. that's a good thing. We've, uh, we've come a long way from Napoleon saying, give them a whiff of grape. Uh, Absolutely have. And, um, you know, people are always focused on the bad stuff in the news. And I think that every now and again, it, it pays to zoom out and just go, you know what, even though this sucks ass, it's a hell of a lot better than it would have been 30 years ago. And I think that there's a strong case to be made for democratic movements in that respect yeah. right now. Um, and we're seeing more and more of these pop up. Um, to the ex yeah, the social media aspect of it, I think, may be overplayed. I see it more as a prerequisite to these kinds of things than an actual driver or catalyst. I think that and potentially at times, I think it can be a uh, an inhibitor of uh, you know actual uh, social protest just by people clicking on a like button and thinking they've done a good job. Yeah, that's interesting, mate. I mean, we should definitely discuss that at some point because I'm reading a super interesting book at the moment by a guy called Evgeny Morozov who's against what he calls technological solutionism, which is the idea that every human problem can be solved by technology. Um, and he has a book, it's called uh, To Save the World, Click Here. Um, and that's some really interesting reading. We'll discuss that at some point in the future. Yeah. Um, so, you know, con in conclusion on this one, I think that we both agree that um, this is a mark of progress. Yeah. It really is. And at the same time, it sucks that there seems to be a counter-revolution underway that's having some real impact. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I, I can, I would hope that uh, perhaps the uh, the violence against protesters last night might actually re-spark them again because they've been going for a while now, and you could understand that uh, the original protesters uh, might be getting a bit um, worn down by it. Uh, but you never know; uh, possibly the the violence overnight might um, uh, might create uh, create a whole new. Uh, demographic of protesters who might have been sitting on the sidelines up until now. I, um, yeah, it's quite possible. Yeah. It'd be really interesting to see how it plays out. I read an interview with, uh, with one bloke who was, uh, who was saying pretty much exactly that. He was a middle-aged uh, Hong Kong businessman, uh, small businessman who had um, you know, been not on the fence actually, fairly anti-protest uh, because it was costing him money. But when he saw the protesters being assaulted, he he said, you know, I had to step in and try and try and help them uh, because they were just peacefully protesting and I didn't, I didn't agree with what was, uh, with the violence that was being carried out against them. Mm. So that was, you know, quite affirming for human nature. Yeah, well, hopefully that's an indicator of a wider phenomenon that'll kick in over the next few days. So we'll continue to pay attention to this one and as the updates sort of occur, we'll keep talking about it because I think both uh, you and I, Rod, are super interested in these protest movements yeah. um, and their ability to affect change. And, um, yeah. Now, look, 
I just had a thought before, which is that we forgot a very obvious topic. Yeah. Ebola. Uh, did we not mention Ebola right at the start? I'm pretty sure I did. You did? Yeah. Hmm. I must have completely <laughs> missed that. <laughs> Good to know you're paying attention, mate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was probably looking at my iPad or something. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about Ebola. Yeah. Uh, seeing that it was on the agenda um, <laughs> without me knowing about it. Yeah. I, um, I've, I've been very interested in, uh, in Ebola pretty much... Um, for uh, for several months now, since the you know reports started coming out, I think um, you know the first time I really started hearing about it, they were talking about uh, three or four hundred cases in um, uh, sort of Sierra Leone, Liberia, that kind of area, and I've just sort of seen it gradually grow since then in terms of uh, news coverage until finally this week it you know just exploded when uh, a bloke in Texas. Um, wandered around having been released from hospital for a couple of days while infectious. Four days. Four days. So apparently what's happened is the hospital's been good about it. They've released a detailed report about what went wrong. And the information about his travel history was collected. But because of the nature of the electronic interface that the information was scrutinised with, um, uh, the person doing the scrutiny just missed the fact that he had been in Liberia. So after uh, having symptoms for two days, he went to hospital. He was released, whereupon, and given antibiotics. And he went back home for four days and got to the point where he had to be carted away in an ambulance. Yeah, that's, uh, that's not what you want. So the um, Texas authorities have not covered themselves in glory on this one because I heard on the Rachel Maddow show very interesting snippet from the press conference uh, between whatever government authority handles these kinds of things in Texas and the uh, the press. And the press were extremely displeased with the lack of transparency and the evasive responses to their questions about how the authorities were handling this. And it's kind of ironic, considering that Nigeria have received uh, much in the way of plaudits for actually managing to get the infections in Lagos under control. Yeah. They haven't had an infection or a new infection reported since August 31. Yeah. And I remember when uh, when I first heard the reports that there was um, uh, the, the outbreak had reached Lagos in Nigeria, um, I remember thinking at that point, wow, that's a worry. It's one of the largest cities in the world. It's, um, it's also a very busy city. It's a busy port city. People, it's, uh, it's a bit of a hub for Western Africa. Um, uh, and I just remember thinking, okay, well, if it's going to, if it's really going to start spreading outside of Western Africa, I think that's where you know it'll be spreading from from Nigeria. But they've done a they've done a brilliant job by by all reports. Yeah, um, and a shout out to Bill and Melinda Gates, who apparently um, have been instrumental in keeping the infections under control in Nigeria because of a repurposed infectious diseases center that was. Um, basically used as the headquarters to control the effort. And um, that was opened in 2012 and apparently had a lot to do with the really adept coordination that got everything under control. Um, so that's pretty damn cool. Yeah. Props to Bill Gates, man. I think he's done a lot of good for the world um, to make up for what he did with Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> Blue screens and uh, controlling Ebola. Uh, both in his portfolio, so I give him credit for the latter. <laughs> um, yeah, 
Um, one thing about the uh, the Ebola thing, which uh, which you were mentioning, uh, and which I find quite interesting, is how uh, you know a lot of Western governments and World Health Organization and things like this uh, have all been at, at pains to uh, to try and reassure people um, that it's uh, it's controllable, that it's unlikely to you know really become a global pandemic and all this sort of thing, and yet people don't seem to believe them. Mm. I'm not sure that people don't believe them. I think that there's a lack of clarity around what kind of contact. So it's pretty well established that unless the disease mutates, and that's a whole different bag of scary, unless it mutates and is communicable like the flu in an airborne way, then you need contact with bodily fluids. But the nature of that contact is grey, or it seems to be. Yeah, I mean, because as soon as I as soon as I heard that, I immediately thought, well, and also apparently some of the symptoms are similar to flu symptoms. Yeah. So if someone sneezes, and bits of saliva, and little particles of saliva and snot are coming out, and you breathe them in, how is that not? having contact with their bodily fluids. Well, I think it is. Yeah, so I mean... I think it is. And the interesting thing is that the um, MSNBC journalist, or sorry, not the MSNBC journalist, the um, the chap who came to Dallas who was infected, received his infection apparently by carrying a pregnant woman by her legs to medical attention because she was sick with the disease or the virus. Um, and the question is, well, is just having contact with sweat and then perhaps wiping your mouth enough to catch it? And yeah. the answer seems to be yes. So while people talk about contact with bodily fluids, um, I mean, the range of activities that can facilitate contact with bodily fluids it's is actually high. Yeah, it's super wide. There's a lot of different ways you can catch it, especially when someone's super infectious. Yeah, that's one. I, I, um, I probably need to do a bit more research in, into that one because it, uh, it just seems strange to me uh, how it could be on the one hand, oh, don't worry, very easily containable, only. Mm. Uh, only uh, uh, transferable by contact with body fluids, not a worry, because I, it just seemed like, well, that's actually quite transferable. Yeah, it is transferable, but it's, I mean, basically, if everyone stays indoors, mm. you're going to solve the problem. So, I mean, my opinion on it is that it's pretty unlikely that it would ever get to any kind of serious pandemic proportions in the Western world. Um, and if Nigeria can get it under control, even with the help of Bill and Melinda Gates, um, I think it's pretty unlikely that uh, Western countries not going to be able to get another under control. But what's really noticeable is that when journalists who are interviewing um, experts in the medical field about the disease really drill down into the details of how the thing can be communicated, there's a lot of hedging. Yeah. Um, I, I don't hear many categorical statements about what is and isn't possible so far as contact with bodily fluids is concerned. So the reality is, is that, uh, you know, this is not a disease that the Western world has had a great deal of time to come to terms with. The doctors don't really know what the precise boundaries of, like, how do you define contact with bodily fluids? Yeah. So there seems to be a lack of, um, of uh, a sort of a clear definition about how to avoid the problem. And... I think what's particularly interesting here as well 
and I've mentioned this to you, Rod, yeah. is the indicators that the crisis of, of uh, trust that how would you how would you put it? The fact that people just don't trust institutions anymore. There's a crisis of authority. Um, people don't believe the government, basically. Yeah. And so you see that very clearly in a marked drop in school attendance throughout Texas with people keeping their children home from school. So obviously, it's like zero risk that your kid's going to get infected, but people just don't really believe what they're hearing. And I don't think it's often that you see a practical impact from people not trusting government institutions, but this could be one situation where there is actually a tangible problem that's caused by that lack of trust, in the sense that if you don't trust the government to coordinate a virus infection prevention effort, and that could cause all sorts of serious problems. I mean, when you need to monitor people who are infectious, um, you, you've got to ask questions about whether or not those people are going to be willing to be monitored if they don't trust the government that's monitoring them. Yeah. It's a real problem. Um, and I think the undertones of the American news coverage are that this chap who has it is an African-American, seems to come from an African-American neighbourhood, um, and there is this problem, uh, particularly amongst the African-American community, of distrust of authorities, and that's going to make it a lot harder to, um, for the, the Centre for Disease Control to do their job in preventing further infections. Yeah. I, I hadn't actually uh, seen any articles with that um, sort of implication, but no, I, it haven't, was... I haven't been reading a lot of uh, American sources on this, to be honest. Right. With you. I mean, the only reason I say that is because I watched, I mean, as I often do, uh, I watch a lot of uh, American news television shows, and they don't say it explicitly, but they're like, is this real undercurrent of how can we be sure that people are going to trust the people from the CDC? It's like, well, you know, this guy comes from an African-American community. It's obviously not an affluent one. And there are obviously, in the wake of Ferguson, a lot of problems with the African-American community trusting the government for good bloody reason. I wouldn't trust the government if I was them either. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see if that plays out and becomes more explicit in the news coverage over the next few weeks. Yeah, I'll keep an eye on it. Yeah. Now, um, what what do you want to move on to now, mate? Um, what else is happening in the world? I was just thinking, uh, just still on the Ebola thing, I don't know if there's any connection to it at all, but I was... Uh, I just found it a, uh, a bit strange. I was on the uh, I was on the train in Sydney the other day, and there was all these you know public announcements talking about if you're feeling unwell, uh, don't don't hang around. Go up to one of the uh, guards on the train and let them know. Um, so yeah, they, I've heard that as well. Yeah, and I was just wondering, you know, is there is there a flu outbreak in Australia, or is it, or are they just? No, I think they've just had a few incidents where people have actually had had serious health incidents on the train, yeah. and they've had to stop the train. I um, didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't think it was uh, anything to do with Ebola, but I just thought it was interesting in in terms of uh, what a you know uh, an Australian response to uh, to a health health problem might be. Um, yeah, I think the idea is basically to get these people off moving transport so the transport can keep moving if yeah. they have this, if they have a serious <laughs> health problem. And that makes perfect sense from society's perspective, if not from the person who wants to get where they're going's perspective. Yeah. Um, I think 
What's also been interesting to watch in the American media this week, as I've mentioned, I know a lot of American media watching, I'm fascinated and horrified by it in equal measure, is the hyperventilation around this bloke who managed to scale the fence, run across the front yard of the White House, and actually really like get to the bottom of the stairs that lead up to the living quarters of the Obama family. Um, of course, the uh, Secret Service initially told everyone that the guy was tackled immediately as he entered the doors to the north portico of the White House, but that turns out to have been incorrect. The lady who was running the Secret Service has fallen on her sword, uh, which is kind of ironic considering she was brought in to um, uh, fix the, the Secret Service after their scandals um, of uh, around uh, hiring prostitutes in South America. <laughs> so Secret Service is a little bit uh, uh, under siege at the moment. And um, it's been really interesting. It's something you don't want uh, incompetence in, I think, is no, your Secret Service. It's this idea, again, of you only need to get it wrong once. Yeah. And I mean, there are certain groups where incompetence is uh, is okay. Yeah, and I actually think that one of the problems here there are here, certain groups where it is not. Secret Service, it is not okay to be incompetent. Yeah, that that said, I have a certain amount of sympathy for them in the sense that they don't want to kill people who jump that fence. It's it does actually demonstrate a little bit of restraint. Apparently, there's a fence jumper once every two weeks. Really? I had no idea yeah, it would be that high. It happens a lot, <laughs> apparently. And um, they're, they're just not keen on shooting people dead on the front lawn of the White House. Well, that's nice. It is. And, you know, it's uncharacteristic for Americans, <laughs> let's be honest. Um, so I suppose this guy had a concealed weapon. Um, and so uh, no doubt he was being followed by snipers. And they looked at him and thought, well, he's not carrying arms outwardly. At least it's, you know, fairly obvious he doesn't have a gun. So we're not going to shoot the guy. Uh, and there are a number of other security redundancies. Lucky he didn't have somebody dynamite strapped under his vest. Well, that's, of course, <laughs> what the media is saying. And also the idea of concealed weapons. And yeah. he did have a concealed weapon. Um, so it's been interesting to uh, sort of watch the American media get crazy about that. Uh, and I think it's really actually pretty revealing of how easy it would be to mount a terrorist attack on the White House, at least until that incident happened. And it's kind of amazing to me that you have the President of the United States just hangs out in this place that doesn't have like a serious fence around it. Have you ever been to the White House before? Yeah. Well, it's, not in it, but I, you know, from the outside. Certainly, I've not been yeah. in it. Yeah, but from the outside, I was actually surprised myself that the fence wasn't a more imposing structure. Yeah, and I can really imagine an incident a lot like the Saigon American Embassy during the Vietnam War. Um, for those of you who don't know, part of the Tet Offensive, I believe it was 1968 or at least 1969, was that um, you know a, a bunch of Viet Cong basically took over the American embassy in the middle of Saigon. And that was considered this incredible affront to American power. And I can only imagine that there are a few uh, Islamic extremists sitting around who love the idea of having a few dozen guys just attack the White House all at once. 
and in the commotion to actually occupy the White House with weapons and have to be sort of shot yeah. out of the place. I actually read a really interesting article this week on a uh, on a comedy website actually, Cracked.com, yeah. about uh, incredible, uh, astonishing attacks on America that everyone just forgot about. Yeah. Uh, and one of them was this Islamic group in the 70s who took over, I, I think, three government buildings in the middle of Washington. Um, what? Yeah, I took hostages, killed a couple of people. Um, I do yeah. not know about that. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, and uh, their, their demands were, were, like, absurd. Like, we want $700, not... Not seven hundred million dollars, like proper, like Doctor Evil, seven hundred dollars, um, <laughs> and, and all this sort of thing. It was bizarre. Okay, we'll um, have to look into that. Yeah. Um, anyway, so why don't we move on to the um, topic suggested by John Kilpatrick? Yeah, the um, uh, the failure of representative democracy, which is a very interesting topic. I thought good uh, good suggestion, Kill. Yeah, we have talked about that too yeah. in the past. Um, so I don't know. As in, I suppose to start with, I mean, I think we both agree that there are several major flaws in the democratic model of most Western nations at the moment. However. Would you still say it's better than the alternative still? The alternative being what? Uh, well, not the, you know, places that do not have the democratic model. Uh, theocracies. Oh, sorry, I thought uh, you were talking about... I thought you were talking about the representative democratic model. So the idea of um, representative democracy versus direct democracy, for instance. Yeah, but I mean, the, I mean, there are very few places that have that I mean, in terms of... I still think yeah. democracy is the least worst system, yeah. yeah. Um, if I could think of a way to put in place a system of um, peaceable anarchy, I'd be all for it, but I can't see that that's practical, at least yet. Yeah. Um, I'd like to think that at some point we'll be able to move past centralised authority, even if it takes us a few hundred years, and we can sort of have more control over our own lives, basically avoid things like, you know, old lawyers telling me that I can't take psychedelic drugs, for instance. That really pisses me off. Um, you know, if anything, you should have control over your own consciousness, in my opinion. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to, uh, you know, for anyone listening, we're about to talk a lot about the, uh, the failures of our... Um, of our systems, and I didn't want anyone going, oh, so what are you suggesting, dictatorship or something? Like, no, we're not idiots. No, <laughs> we're not. Um, we, I think I think we can talk about the failures of our system um, because it's important to look at that. A valid alternative, though, is direct democracy, yeah. and the Swiss are a great example of that. You do love the Swiss. I love the Swiss. Anyway, not to get too hung up on that, <laughs> can I start the conversation by saying that representative democracy as it now stands, was conceived in a context where to have a vote, you were really supposed to be a white male landowner. Yeah. As in, to have a vote, you are a wealthy white man. Yeah. Now, I can't say that that was necessarily the case um, at the foundation of the Australian Constitution, but, I mean, I actually uh, know more about the American. Yeah. Um, it was pretty much the same. I, I just, 
I think Australia was actually one of the first nations to allow women to have the vote. Yeah, we were. Um, we were. I don't know if we were the first, but certainly right up there. We were, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, so as far as the American system is concerned, at least, which is really, I suppose you'd call it the... Prototype of modern democracy. Yeah, it's the prototype of modern democracy. That's a good way to put it. You Thank know? you. And um, in order to participate in that system as a voter, you had to be a white landowning male. Um, and so I think that that assumption is more built into representative democracy than you might think at first glance. This, uh, this fairly paternalistic idea of, well... We need to mediate the fervour of the people by allowing them to express their will through a, a, a channel, a, another person who we have more trust in as an individual. And I don't think that the mob or, or sort of direct democracy is without its flaws. But I think representative democracy is an overly sort of paternalistic way to conduct our affairs yeah um and it seems like to me just to have been and perhaps you know this is perhaps it's always been the case i wouldn't really know because i wasn't there um but uh certainly you know since i've been looking at it just completely hijacked by well capitalism basically yeah (laughs) it seems like you know the power of uh of who has uh who has the means to uh, to influence policy now is much more important than policy in the actual national interest. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people who hate the idea of capitalism. And, I don't. I don't. And ha- corporations. I don't hate it, but... And I think full disclosure, we're kind of both fans of the system, generally speaking. Um, so my opinion on corporations is that uh, the idea of giving them free speech rights is ludicrous. It's a silly extension of a legal fiction of corporate personhood that really, I mean, there is no reason to extend corporate personhood to free speech. Even if a corporation is a collection of individuals, each of those individuals has the right to say whatever the fuck they want. But I don't see that corporations need rights to free speech, which is the foundation of the Citizens United case reasoning that gives them the ability to contribute to campaigns. Um, That, to me, is just ludicrous. I don't know how the Supreme Court justify it. And I find myself increasingly pissed off with the influence and sway that legal fiction has in an abstract way over reality when reality just doesn't reflect the legal fiction. It's almost as if legal fictions were created to regulate reality and now... yeah. Well, I suppose that makes sense in the sense that like legal fictions were created to regulate reality, but they seem to have just departed so far from what is common sense that they have these ludicrous outcomes where you ascribe free speech rights to a, an abstract entity that just yeah. seems silly. It's like giving free speech to a chair. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, if the law happens to call the chair person for various reasons of convenience to allow them to trade or whatever. (laughs) Um, I mean, that's essentially what it is. So corporate personhood is kind of a weird legal fiction that everyone just on its face. I mean, is that, is, uh, is one of the failures of, uh, you know, the current, uh, model of representative democracy, perhaps the, uh, the sheer number of people, certainly in Australia, 
um, at the upper echelons of, um, of politics who come from legal backgrounds. Um, because it's... I think it's a problem. I mean, I don't like lawyers, even though I'm a lawyer. <laughs> Generally speaking, I'm not a fan of the kind of person attracted to law. Um, and, you know, I'm fairly comfortable with being a self-loathing lawyer. Yeah. As in, I, um, I can't really speak to, uh, to other, other nations. I don't, uh, I don't pay a lot of attention to, you know, the, the personal backgrounds of the leaders of the UK or, or the, you know, France or wherever. But certainly in Australia, it seems that most of our politicians either come from a legal background or basically, basically political apparatchiks who have just been in the, uh, in the system of whatever their particular party is since they got out of high school. Neither of those categories, I think, are particularly well suited to, uh, to making decisions in the national interest. Agreed. I'd like to see more scientists. And I'd, frankly, I'd like to see more business people like Turnbull, who've actually accomplished something in their life. Notwithstanding that he was actually, he's a lawyer, but he was a brilliant lawyer. Yeah, he was also a lawyer who sort of moved away from the law. Yeah. Um, and ended up doing a lot of other things. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, obviously the guy has his flaws, but in a contest between he and Abbott, <laughs> it would be a very easy decision for me personally. Yes. Uh, so to get back to representative democracy, yeah. I think there's this idea that it's sort of a pretty, it, it evolved in a fairly paternalistic um, white male property owner centric system. And it would be silly to deny that. And I think that has influence up to the current day. Yeah. And there's also this issue of it was conceived at a time where it wasn't possible or it was very difficult for direct democracy to logistically work. Yeah, I mean, there were the uh, today's access of information... And communication. And communication uh, is something that, you know, wouldn't have... Uh, would not have been in the mind of the founding fathers of the US or, you know, the original parliament in England or... That's the, it. Uh, the drafters of the Australian Constitution. When it takes right. a few days to communicate via horseback... Yeah. It's far less practical to delegate power to the citizenry. Yeah. It is just a super difficult thing to run. Yeah. And I don't see that it's impossible now. In fact, I think it's eminently plausible. Uh, and I personally would really like to see the dispersal of power away from centralised authorities uh, so that... Um, we don't feel as if we're represented by people that don't have our best interests at heart because we have now this professionalised class of career politicians who are interested only in the advancement of their own um, career in politics rather than getting shit done. Yeah, and it's... Um, uh, I mean, the other way that uh, the system has evolved in, in most uh, Western nations, or at least most of the big ones, seems to be the two-party system. Um, and that, I don't think, is, uh, is uh, conducive to uh, actually getting things done. It's, it's, more, uh, it's more just devolved into a shit fight, basically, of political point scoring. Yeah, there's this kind of stability. I think stability is generally considered a good thing. But... I think that a system without a little bit of, or without the capacity for a bit of creative destruction, 
um, or the ability to keep the players guessing is one that falls into a kind of stagnant routine. And what we see in American and Australian politics is a really sort of predictable, pathetic, going through the motions. I mean, what else would you use to describe it? Sort of like people know the game too well. Yeah. There isn't enough in it that mixes it up, keeps people guessing, and makes them sort of think and adapt their their policies to new circumstances. Yeah. They're, they're, Every now and again in Australia, a minor party will come out but, and, um, and attempt to shake things up, but they tend not to last. I mean, the Greens have been around for a long time. Uh, they're not going anywhere. They're not really going anywhere. We've got Clive Palmer in Australia now, and... Jesus. He's given a bad name to any kind of independent political initiative, isn't he? Yeah, he's... he's a fucktard, that guy. I mean, uh, he, he, he is an idiot who got lucky um, in terms of just gaining his wealth in the first place. Uh, and um, Let, Let's not get on to him yeah. because I feel like that's a waste of time. Yeah. Um, so I think, generally speaking, my feeling on representative democracy is that because it centralises power somewhat and it creates a system in a single place with people who are incorporated and, and playing in that fairly small microcosm, there's the ability to hack the system. And you see that particularly in America where I feel as if people have figured out how to rig it. Yeah. And there just doesn't seem to be a way to break the stranglehold that particularly corporate interests have over a system that was really not sort of conceived to give them that power. Yeah. And uh, just on the thing of people have worked out how to rig it. Yeah. Um, and linked to something we were talking about earlier, the um, uh, access of uh, information and communication. Mm. Um, what you see in uh, in representative democracies now is sort of the rise of the demagogue, uh, people like who are able to just really play on the fears and insecurities of the general populace mm. um, to to gain and maintain power, and that's who's, who's your um, example there? Which country are we talking about? Because I actually think a bit of demagoguery could do the system a well a world of good. Elizabeth Warren being a good example. I don't agree with a lot of her politics, but there does need to be someone who's a demagogue in favour of the people against special interests. I actually think that's kind of good demagoguery, for want of a better way to put it. Yeah, I, I, whenever I think demagogue, I think of playing on the fears rather than anything like that. And that's, that's exactly what Tony Abbott has been doing for the past few months to increase his standing in the polls. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, that's, it's, right, I see what you mean. So, yeah, you're talking about demagoguery in terms of um, mainstream political parties pulling people towards them through less admirable impulses, yes. shall we say. Uh, yeah, that's annoying as hell. I'm not sure if it's a problem with representative democracy per se, though, and I actually think there's an More argument... More of a problem with just human nature. Yeah, but it's also a problem that could be exacerbated by direct democracy, truth be told. Yeah. While I'm in favour of direct democracy over representative democracy, uh, the rule of the mob is really a problem, 
And I don't think I'd be comfortable with direct democracy in whatever form that takes without a constitutional bill of rights in this country that would be akin to what the Americans have. Not that the constitutional bill of rights seems to be helping the Americans guard their rights against an increasingly invasive government, but you know, that aside, I think the American judiciary is pretty fucked up. I think ours is better actually. I'm just gonna come out and say yeah. it. I do think the Australian judiciary takes more seriously black letter law. They take more seriously actually reading legislation and deriving real meaning from it. Uh, the judiciary in America is ludicrously politicised. Well, yeah, that, I mean, that was the point I was about to make. The, the Australian judiciary, with um, you know the occasional exception, mm. is much less politicised. than It is. And while that comes from That this separation point, of powers still more or less exists. Yeah. Bizarrely, though, we have kind of less of a separation of powers in this country than the Americans do. Uh, at least between the executive and the legislature. Uh, but look, regardless, I th would you be in favour of direct democracy in some form, assuming it was workable over representative democracy? Like if you could flip yeah, the switch. Yeah, I mean, the, the workable thing is the issue. Like how do you make it work? Because yeah, just, as a, just as a thought experiment, if someone goes, workable model of uh, direct democracy, yeah, but... How that happens is... Okay, well, why don't we talk about the Californian model, where if you get enough signatures, you can put something on a ballot, um, a proposition they call it, and the state votes on it, and that becomes law. Now, the Californians have actually caused themselves some terrible problems with that system in the sense that initiatives like never raise land taxes... <laughs> Um, have really gotten in the way of the state balancing its budget. Um, the three strikes and you're out law. Actually, yeah. That's another good example of basically a really cunty proposition that, that gets up because people en masse are kind of keen on being tough on crime, even if the results of that is something as stupid as a guy going to prison for life for stealing a fucking pizza. Yeah. So... I mean, the Californian model, while California's on an upswing with Jerry Brown taking over, it had to reach a real crisis point in order to turn that corner. And arguably, the direct democracy model there contributed a lot to it. So I don't know if... Uh, yeah. Another thought I had, not so much related to direct democracy, but just something... I would like uh, to see in terms of improving representative democracy, not that I think it would ever happen, is just uh, the banning of lobbyists. I'd <laughs> the banning of lobbyists, though, can I just pipe up as a free speech fundamentalist? Yeah. That really worries me. Um, it's a hard thing to define a lobbyist, and you can be damn sure that people are going to do stuff that amounts to lobbying, even if it doesn't fall within a technical definition. Yeah. And if you want to stop people from trying to get around a technical definition that's relatively and reasonably narrow, then you're going to have to draft a broad definition, and a broad definition is going to suppress a lot of what I would consider to be legitimate free speech. I actually think you need to approach it from the other direction. You need to basically regulate the ethics of politicians. I know that that's kind of a contradiction in terms. <laughs> but I actually think that the way that you handle the problem is not by having people talk, citizens talk, 
um, or even give money, maybe. Yeah, because I, I, think... I mean, this is like with lobbyists, political donations, all this kind of thing. I, I don't see how it's not corruption in a very broad form of the uh, of the word. Mm. I mean, it's people accepting money and then forming policy in the line of the people in line of the interests of those people who've given them money. I mean, is there anything wrong with the idea of recusal? So if a judge has a personal stake of some description in the outcome of a court case, they can recuse themselves and not be the person responsible for making the decision. It's a yeah. simple idea of the conflict of interest. I mean, should there I, be a system where a politician, if they receive a lot of money from a particular industry, for instance, yeah. can recuse themselves from voting on that kind of legislation? I was under the impression that there were already uh, rules that they were supposed to do that. So there are rules about quid pro quo. So the basic idea, so far as I can ascertain, and I'm sure that there are all sorts of different regulations in different... There are different regulations in different states in America. Um, and confusion, confusion about which caused trouble. For instance, Bob McDonnell, the former governor of Virginia, just got uh, convicted of um, political corruption because there's this lack of clarity around what is actually quid pro quo. But the basic idea is that it's corruption if you can prove the link between receiving the money and acting in a legend and acting um, in a legislative manner. Um, so that link, it, it's sort of the difference between causation and correlation. Yeah. You can tend to vote in the interests of the people who give you money, provided it's only a correlation. But the minute that people can say, well, there was a deal struck, such that if they gave you money, then you were going to vote in their interests, then that's causation. Yeah, and, and of, yeah. the the line is blurred. Yeah, obviously the line is blurred. So just ban political donations. Bland, yeah, but I mean, again, to my mind, I don't see the trouble. I don't see the trouble with people contributing money as a way of expressing their preference in the political process. Um, I think that's a good thing. What really concerns me is the idea of corporations being able to do it, at least in America, through these super PAC vehicles. Um, I mean, do you think that there should... So a blanket ban on political donations. I don't think it's workable at all. I could never see it happening. Um, but if it could happen, I would be in favour of it. Well, what about public financing of campaigns? So you basically... You stake out the scope of what we consider as a, as a society to be campaign activities and you say those must be publicly financed. If you're going to engage in activity A, B, C, D or E, then you need to use money provided to you by the government um, and you can't use private donations to do any of those things. That's generally speaking the alternative that's proposed by the left wing, particularly in the United States. I hadn't actually, you know, I hadn't heard that proposal. Yeah, the, um, there is actually, the campaigns had an option, and I think they still do, to accept public financing instead of having the ability to collect private financing. And President Obama, <laughs> Captain Idealism incarnate, uh, was widely panned 
for saying that he would accept public financing and then reneging on that deal because he realised he was going to get far more money from <laughs> private donations. He's reneged on a few things, old Barak. Yes, he has. Um, he's a pragmatist in a bad system, in my opinion. Uh, so what... It's kind of difficult to think of a way to sum up what we've just said about representative democracy. I don't know that we've really reached any conclusion. No, it, it does have, just that it does have a lot of flaws. It's got flaws. And could do you think we would reach agreement on the proposition that dispersing power away from the representatives in a representative democracy is probably a good thing. Yeah, and I, I think that's... At uh, least an interesting avenue for improving yeah. the system. Um, and uh, perhaps this is a conversation for another another day, but I think the, the dispersion of power um, down to smaller groups is, uh, is always a good idea because once you, uh, once you have people making decisions for large... Uh, for large numbers, all they will see is numbers. Mm. People, and, people don't have the ability to give a shit about large numbers of people. It's part of our genetic makeup. Yeah, that's it. I think it's uh, Dunbar's number. We'll probably have to go into that another time. Yeah, ten deaths is a tragedy. A million deaths is a statistic. Yeah, it's a similar phenomenon. Um, I think. The interesting tension here, though, is that uh, you end up in a world, when you talk about dispersing power, you end up sort of sounding like, at least in, in its practical application, you sound like a states' rights guy. And that's typically associated with the right wing rather than the left. Yeah. Not that I give a fuck about that because I don't really consider myself devoted to either end of the spectrum. Um, but... The practical application of dispersing power, in this country at least, and in the United States as well to an extent, would be to send more things back to state legislatures. Yeah. And does that... I'm not sure if that makes me feel any better. Yeah. I, I mean, in the Australian model, I think we should get rid of the states. I think that should Yeah, be. the idea of provinces, yeah. something between local and state governments yeah, has just, been bandied about quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. I agree with that. I mean... It'll never happen. <laughs> never, ever, ever. Um, I mean, we could amend the Constitution, but, jeez, uh, there'd be a lot of, uh, of entrenched interests who wouldn't be interested in that apple cart being upset. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that would be possible, actually. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's a bit unfortunate with this discussion. We've, uh, we've covered a fair bit of ground, but we are pretty much unable to... Uh, to come up with any workable solutions at the moment. Yeah, but uh, we've always said that we'd be 100% frank yeah. about when we're basically at our wit's end. And on this one, I really like the idea of dispersing power. Um, I also like the idea of e-voting, although the fact that no computer system can be guaranteed as secure is kind of a scary uh, side effect of e-voting. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I like the idea of using the internet to facilitate the dispersal of power. I mean, maybe it doesn't have to be a states' rights thing, um, even if that is the sort of immediate current go-to way of accomplishing dispersal of power. Um, yeah, we'll have to think a bit more about it, I think. 
Yeah. Kill, mate, we might come back to you on it. <laughs> it's a subject of further discussion in the uh, Richmond department that we inhabit, I think. Yes. Uh, yeah. All right. Right, yeah. Well, I think, uh, I think that should do for this morning. Sayonara, good listeners.